Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Rusty, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, and we got a special guest panelist this week here at the Battleground. So let's get busy introducing our panel. Claire Zaki is with us every week. Claire is our healthcare director here. Claire, good to have you. Thank you. Good to see you, Matt. And Robert Craig, executive director, is with us as always. Robert? Good day, everyone. Uh, it's great to have you, Robert. And our special guest panelists. We are really happy, thrilled actually, to have uh, Supreme Moore Omukunde, who is hot off his primary election victory. Supreme, great to have you join us. Thank you for having me, Matt. It's always good to be here. Well, it's, it's, it's awesome to have you. Um, and it is also worth pointing out, Supreme also is an organizer here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. But uh, we're thrilled to have you. And we have a, let's just say, we have a historic week uh, to talk about. Uh, we've had a lot of historic weeks lately, but this one is in particular uh because of what's been going on in Kenosha. And um, we did not have a live show last week, so I uh, did not have an opportunity to talk about what happened in Kenosha. Um, we have, uh, since that uh, time, released a couple of statements, which we're going to reference, I'm sure, in the show. Um, but uh, we're not going to go through all sort of the history and the fact based of what's going on, because we know most of our listeners know. But we really want to spend time diving right into what's been going on this week in particular with the visits of President Trump and Senator uh, Joseph Biden are stopping in today as we record Thursday and just sort of really the super hypercharged political environment now uh, that is wrapped up in this. And so Supreme, as our guest panelist, first of all, just, you know, want to, you know, give you an opportunity uh, to welcome yourself, but then also get your immediate thoughts. Cause I know before we started, you were very interested in this dynamic of having the, both of these candidates here in the last two days, Supreme. Yes. First and foremost, I want to draw up a contrast between uh, uh, the discretion used with so many different individuals and how there's a lack of discretion used um, for uh, black men when they come into contact with the police department and all of the, oh, let's wait until we have more information, folks, um, when when uh, Jacob was shot in the back seven times versus when uh, when Kyle, this militia person who was a white supremacist, was was shooting individuals. Right away, it was self-defense. But when, when Jacob was, was shot in the back, we need more information. Um, and the fact that we have both presidential candidates in town, um, I think that um, it speaks volumes because, one, uh, this is on the heels of, of the uh, George Floyd uh, murder on, on live camera. Uh, and the fact that we have Joe Biden, who's there talking about, OK, well, well, we need to talk about racial violence and racial justice, et cetera. Then you have Donald Trump, who didn't even mention it. Um, and he gets here and he's talking about law and order. And he's talking about we're going to meet with cops and support police. And uh, I was saying before, if he if he didn't have this, it's something he would have invented because it's something that he wants to run on the law and order. We're going to crack down on all of these protesters and all of these people who are exercising their First Amendment rights. But we're going to treat them as uh, insurgents and we're going to preemptively strike against them um, and and label them as as people who are violent. So those are my, my biggest takeaways immediately. Uh, I agree, obviously, with everything that 
Supreme just said, and I think um, I think you're absolutely right to point to the stark contrast with the way that our uh, sort of like mainstream society is treating the two the two like most high profile uh, men in this case, right? Um, uh, Jacob and this uh, white supremacist uh, murderer teenager, and that is obviously. Um, that 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 is just like a microcosm of sort of a perfect example of what we're dealing with um, broadly in our society. Um, I think the other thing that I have been thinking a lot about is is what it means to be involved in the racial justice movement, um, especially as um, a white person who is trying to constantly be learning more and doing better and especially engaging with other white people in this movement. And um, I had a conversation recently with a friend. I went to college in Kenosha. Um, and so I have a, a number of friends, um, a lot of, a lot of, most of whom are white, um, who I still engage with. And I was talking with um, one of them recently and she said something to me like, um, you know, I know that this is your, you know, I know that this is your passion. And, and I hope you can understand how some folks might feel differently. And I, and I thought a lot about that phrase and have been for days thinking about that phrase, I know this is your passion. And I think that shows that this is the way that a lot of people who don't, who don't recognize or want to affirm the full humanity of, of Black folks, of other marginalized communities, might feel that like this is, a, this is my passion, as if it's like my hobby. And you can kind of you know, um, choose to be passionate about it or not. You know, and and I, I don't think that that fighting for racial justice um, is my passion. I think it's my my moral obligation. I think it's my responsibility. But I don't. But I think calling something like this a passion is like saying, you know, I could pick it up or put it down. Kind of like my passion is painting and my passion is baking pies. For me, something that's meant personally is um, thinking about crystal or crystallizing, you know, what or Kenosha crystallizing what I need to be doing more and better and how other people who I thought might be allies might be thinking differently about this movement in a fundamental way than I have and, and my responsibility to reframe the way people view the system and not just the law enforcement system, but also more broadly the movement for um, racial justice. Uh those were both very good, well well stated positions by Supreme and Claire. So I appreciate both of you. Let me just say you have two different major phenomena as far as response, both of which are concerning. One is the conservative response, which is and I say conservative, not just Trump, because this is the conservative game plan to have minority rule. They're trying to win yet another election and hold power without a majority. And that is revving up these toxic emotions, do anything. And so the smear that Black Lives Matter is not a massive peaceful protest movement, but a bunch of rioters and violent people that are threatening everyone is a big lie. And it ties into a whole lot of racial stereotypes about black men and violence. And 
The truth of the matter is that 90 percent of violence in this country of an organized kind, whether you want to call it terrorism or not, is from the right wing, from these white militia-style groups and other right-wing extremists. And this is FBI data, okay, folks? And so in, in this case, who was murdered? Uh, two protesters. Who were they murdered by a right-winger? You know, um, Mike Pence had the audacity at convention, Republican convention, to call out the murder in Oakland of a Homeland Security officer and didn't happen to mention it was a right-wing extremist that killed the officer. He made it sound like it was Black Lives Matter. And it's so bad that Tucker Carlson, and yes, I do check what he is saying on Fox News so you don't have to, uh, called a couple days ago for the arrest of all the Black Lives Matter leaders nationally and Antifa, as if it has a leadership or has been a, played any documented role in violence uh, in, the, in, in these senses, it's made up. And, of course, because he watches a day and a half later, President Trump called for the same thing, and President Trump spread an Internet rumor about loads of people being shipped around uh, to, to cause riots around the country and that they're investigating turns out to be some Idaho discredited rumor from months ago uh, about people coming from o o from uh, Seattle to Boise. And then furthermore, they're now doubling down the movement on this, the, the right-wing movement, where they're say saying this must be orchestrated. There must be some group of people. So they're making it into a communist conspiracy when they don't have one to go back to the 50s. So you have that. And it's not working. On our side, if you say the whole opposition, Democrats, progressives, mainline Democrats, on our side, they're, they're worried and panicking that they're going to lose the election on this. And they're not standing for the structural reforms we need to stand for, because police violence is always the tip of the spear of structural racism. We would not say that if we end the lynchings, Jim Crow is humane, or we can have a humane slavery you have this over-policing under protection of minority communities because we've decided to segregate them, steal resources from them, and create a deeply unjust system where they are not full human beings and citizens. And we need to be, do the things we have to do to resolve that, and most Democrats are not on board for the real structural reforms we need. With that, we have got to take a break here at the Battleground Wisconsin. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We're talking about the events in Kenosha this week. And um, we are fortunate to have a special guest with us that is soon to be new state representative, Supreme Moor Umakunde. Supreme, uh, wanted to get an opportunity for you to respond. We obviously had. Uh, each had some amazing, interesting things to comment on, but wanted to give you an opportunity to just uh, uh, some further thoughts. It's, it's interesting, um, and people ask me this all the time. Donald Trump never transitioned from politician to statesperson, um, and it's really important to recognize that fact. He's been running for office since 2015 or 2014, and he has never stopped, and he's never transitioned. Anyone who's an elected official like my, my colleague just joined us, anyone who's elect, an elected official knows that at some point you have to transition from getting off the campaign trail to being a statesperson, and he never did that. Even if you run every two years, 
like many of us do. At some point, you have to transition to being a states person. He never did that. He never has had that quality. He doesn't really have that capacity. Um, and it's interesting to, to note that, and people should take that into consideration. And um, it's, a, it's a skill that can be developed, and he hasn't developed it. And as Supreme just referenced there, we have a special guest. We are very fortunate to be joined by State Representative David Bowen. Uh, Representative, thanks for joining us. How's it going, guys? Thanks for having me. We really appreciate it. Uh, we have been talking about uh, what's been going on in Kenosha, but particularly this week, the, the national politicizing. But um, And we would like to actually get your take on what's been happening at the state level, because we think, and certainly you have been a leader on this, that the, the, there's so much that needs to be done uh, at the state and our local levels. And uh, wanted to get your thoughts, obviously, this week. There was a special session called by the governor that was gaveled in and gaveled out. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on that, on this, where we're at. But then we also want to talk about what ought to be happening. But, uh, David, if you could just uh, give us, uh, give our listeners your thoughts as to what's been going on this week, particularly with this at the state level uh, in addressing this issue. Sure. First off, let me uh, greet my, my, my uh, good brother here, Supreme, who's coming to the state. He's coming to the circus you know, to uh, uh, rumble a little bit, you know, there's an action happening at the state, right? We, we see that state Republicans have continued to just ignore this issue. They do not plan on addressing it seriously with legislation. And we know that's what will change uh, systemically public safety as we know it in Wisconsin. That's what will change uh, black folks to be able to, to survive police encounters and not to survive police encounters, but to thrive in their communities again. Um, so, you know, we are seeing posturing at the state. Uh, we are not seeing the basic bills that the governor brought forward, which I would say was a, uh, a, a peace uh, offering to Republicans to say, let's work on these basic proposals that are bipartisan, that are Democrat and Republican proposals. Um, that we could get done uh, so we don't have to have no not warrants or chokeholds uh, so that we can standardize use of force standards across the state uh, so that we can increase and have mandatory de-escalation training and uh, reporting standards on use of force and tracking the data and things of that nature. These are basic things that we can do uh, to move the ball forward and a good first step. And Republicans pretty much said no. Nah. So uh, if they aren't going to take a special session um, and they should you know, make that official today as they recess to today without calling any of the state reps uh, to actually come to, uh, come to Madison to debate these bills, vote on these bills, um, it, it's nonsense, right? They aren't giving this issue the urgency that it demands. And that falls on Speaker Robin Voss. That falls on uh, leadership in the Assembly and then the Senate with uh, Scott Fitzgerald now moving out, heading to Congress, still not paying this issue any attention. That goes with President Roth, and uh, uh, he, he might be the next future uh, Senate leader. Um, we're not seeing any action. And at this point, we don't need to research research. We don't need to meet just to meet uh, a task force where we have already seen that's where bills go to die. That's where it looks like you're doing bipartisan work. And at the end of the day, there's a list of things that you should do, and that list 
uh, is never really brought to uh, the assembly or to the Senate it's in, in its entirety just to have it voted on. So I'm not here for political posturing. I'm here to be at the table and to uh, fight for the constituents and the people uh, that want to see change, that want to see systemic change. Uh, but now we up the ante and we are going to piecemeal our way towards uh, holding law enforcement uh, departments and officials accountable. Uh, we're going to ask for bold changes that we know will create the change that we know that, that we want to see, uh, that people want to see the mandate that folks have as they have been marching now, maybe the 97th day today, um, 97th and 98th, uh, coming up on 100 days. People aren't just out there every day for uh, the, uh, the, the speaker and the Senate leader uh, to just be ignored. Uh, they're out there to advocate change, for change that they want to see in their lifetime. So, Representative Bowen, thanks for joining us. And obviously, we have future Representative Maura McCunde on as well. Uh, you point out kind of the, the vast difference between uh, the Republican Party conservatives and Democrats, and Democrats are willing to take immediate, reasonable first steps. I'm glad you called them first steps. Uh, before I came on, I was talking about uh, police violence being only the tip of the spear of structural racism. And I know you would agree that there's much more to be done, and it's very hard work. You know, I've been concerned about the political establishment panicking like they think it's 1968 again, as if uh, civil rights was the only thing that caused 1968, not Vietnam War, not a whole lot of other things, right? Uh, but that everything's going to go south, Trump's going to close the gap. No polling support for that, and the polling that's coming out shows, if anything, Biden has, has, has increased his lead, but he's not lost ground anywhere. But the Democrats seem, a lot of them, they're, they're strategists and consultants, ready for that to happen. And it seems to me, obviously, we need action on the first reasonable steps, as you're saying, we need to call that out. But we also need to start to have a Democratic agenda that is bolder, that is out there, and that people know about. And that's my opinion. I'm wondering yours. It doesn't seem like there's a robust uh, structural racism agenda from state Democrats right now. I, I'm sure you'd want one, knowing you and what you're saying. But I'm wondering your thoughts on that, because the public doesn't know what to do if it's not laid out by leaders, such as yourself and all of the other leaders in the legislature and the governor. So I wonder your thoughts on that. Uh, I think we're taking our lead from folks on the ground. Um, the African-American Roundtable and Com Task Force and a number of other groups are coming together to demand things on the local level. And they're saying we want a substantial shift from the spending that is in uh, police departments and policing and, and punitive measures. And we want that shifted to funding community measures that we know that folks need. I, I think defunding the police, uh, as you describe it that way, taking uh, a percentage and shifting it to public resources that have been deprived over decades is a very substantial agenda. And I think also we don't want to just put things out there so Republicans can just put it, take it and, and tear it apart. We want to uh, make sure that we are having a very strategic, uh, collaborative approach with folks that are on the ground, activists that are out there uh, that are advocating for change, uh, in this unprecedented moment of activism and just a resurgence of people taking it to the streets. So um, I think that's important for us to not forget um, that that is a coalition that is a process to be able to work with folks 
um, that are in the community as well, uh, demanding very bold change in, uh, on the local level. And I think that's coming to the state. You're, you're seeing a number of proposals that we've offered in the past uh, that will be brought up again um, and substantial shifts, right? We know the state has made uh, that transition from a, in the 2013-15 budget to spend more dollars on corrections than on education. And uh, we know that the, the Republicans are gearing up for a budget correction bill um, to try to usher in austerity because of the pandemic. Uh, so it's about not losing ground. It's about still investing uh, in us, investing in communities um, with bold numbers and how to do that, and in violence prevention as well, where literally it takes the burden off of police departments to respond and create more situations in the future. We're, we're focused on prevention and how do you do that across the board and across different departments in, in different situations. I think that is the agenda right now, um, but it's not specifically defined um, in all of the specifics because the community and, and leaders are still working together. Representative Bowen, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. And in particular, we really appreciate your leadership in this area. You've been out, you mentioned the marching, you've been out there uh, significantly, you've been present, you've been speaking out. It's been um, great to have your leadership, but we really also appreciate you coming on and, and talking with us today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. That was mine. All right. And with that, we have got to take a break. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. Of course, we want to uh, thank Representative Bowen for joining us in the last segment. Um, We want to talk about another piece of really, really big news that has, of course, extremely broad uh, implications, and that is the announcement this week that uh, the CDC uh, is called a, a moratorium on evictions, but it is important, we want to be clear, uh, that it's just a, a moratorium in terms of, and, and until ja- January, till the end of the year, but that you will still owe all of this money. Claire, this is huge news. We've been certainly involved, Northside Rising, super involved in this issue here at the local level. And so this comes as a little bit of a surprise, uh, but let's dive into this a little more because this may not be as good as it looks. So let's talk about that. Your thoughts, Claire, on and, and what has actually been proposed out there. Yeah, so let's take a minute and talk about um, what this moratorium actually is and what it isn't. And then I want to also sort of contrast it with um, what the Trump administration has previously issued that they sort of misleadingly called an eviction moratorium. Um, So the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, um, issued this eviction moratorium that basically says that if folks can provide an sort of an affirmative uh, statement to their landlord declaring a few things that one, they have used their best efforts to obtain rental assistance, uh, two, that they expect to earn no more than a certain amount of money, 
and, you know, that they're good on their taxes um, and whatnot. Um, and that three, they're unable to make sort of full rent because of income loss, reduced hours, medical costs, and things like that, especially related to the pandemic. Um, four, that they're making their best efforts to make partial rental payments. And that five, an eviction would result in either homelessness or forcing them to move into doubling or tripling up with another household. Um, and if they so that they sign sort of an affirmative statement and make that and deliver that to their landlords, then they could not be evicted through December 31st uh, of this year. And so I think there's a few things that are important about this. One, I don't know what that process is going to look like. I'm hoping that there will be navigators or something to help folks figure out, um, you know, how they sort of make that declarative statement that there is a formal process and then help. Um, someone or a system to help folks navigate that process. Um, because as we know, applying for assistance is often an incredibly administratively burdensome um, challenge for people who are already living in stressful situations. And so I'm a little bit concerned about that, but I am hopeful, very hopeful. Um, the second thing to be aware of is that, that people will still accrue back rent and debt during the eviction moratorium. So yes, it is good that people will not become homeless um, in the early months of winter in the last months of this year. Like that is good. It's also just the bare flipping minimum that our federal government should be doing for like the people of this country, right? And, and it doesn't eliminate a crisis. It just puts a pushes a crisis sort of further down the road. Um, so what we really need, we need Congress to appropriate money and to take action to dedicate the, you know, $100 billion that we need to the 30 to 40 million at-risk renters in this country for emergency rental assistance and sort of rent forgiveness. Like that, that would be the next step that we need Congress to take. Um, and the last thing that I'll say is I think this is important to note that the Trump administration could have been doing this, right? Like they issued what they called a, um, that they called an eviction moratorium in an executive order, but really it applied to such a small number of people in like very specific sized sort of units with certain levels of federal government backing in those buildings, right? It was just this like super small population of folks and then they called it an eviction moratorium. Um, and so it's clear now we can see what an actual eviction moratorium, even without funding behind it, could have looked like, um, and that we could have had something like this all along. Supreme, your thoughts, and obviously this is a huge issue here in Wisconsin, and in particular, certainly we see it play out in Milwaukee uh, and our Northside Rising organizing, uh, which you've been connected to, has been super involved in this. Your thoughts also as uh, an incoming state legislator? Well, I agree with uh, many of the things that uh, that, that Claire uh, stated, um, almost everything. Um, I, literally nothing I disagree with. However, uh, I, I want to remind folks that, again, Donald Trump is a politician. He, as much as he claims that he isn't, he is a politician. He's not a statesman. He's not doing this because it's good for people or that he thinks uh, people will benefit, he's doing it to try to score some points in the election. Um, and so individuals can point to this and say, see, Donald Trump is taking care of us. He's doing right by the people. That's why he's, he's dealing with this now. Um, also, um, as Claire stated, uh, it's just pushing the problem down the road. 
Um, it's kind of like if you were in a very abusive relationship, like emotionally abusive relationship with your partner, and they do the bare minimum to keep the relationship going and pretend as if they've given you the world. That's exactly what this this uh, this uh, uh, boils down to. And so I think it's very important on the local level that folks like uh, like you said, Northside Rising have been working on the moratorium for energy shutoffs and the moratorium for housing. And there's now tenant groups that are working on housing, et cetera, because um, the, the, the bottom line is if I owe you money at the end of, of the year, I probably still owe you that money at the beginning of, of the next year or the middle of the next year. And then you can just put me out when it's colder in February than it might be in December. Um, or, or you could put me out when it gets warm enough, you could just put me out on, on the streets then. And it will still um, contribute to doubled up homelessness and people out on the streets, et cetera. And so he's not solving a problem. Um, he's just trying to score some political points. And I think the work on the ground, folks on the ground have been doing that work to try to, to, to really solve that issue. And I think Sheriff Lucas should be brought into the conversation as well, because he's the one that actually will be doing those evictions. And as an independently elected official, he needs to be talking about what his purview is and what he can and cannot do in that regard. Well, Robert, this is very similar to Trump's their approach uh, when they said they were going to solve on stimulus as that relates to uh, taxes, that they were going to have a payroll tax uh, deferment. But then you would owe all that at the end. This is like it is it is really like, quite frankly, one of the worst solutions you could come up with because there's no revenue to actually solve the real problem. Just a couple of quick things before I say that. For our radio audience, especially, it may not be familiar with Citizen Action of Wisconsin. Northside Rising is the new chapter organizing co-op we're building in Milwaukee area, African-American-led and centered. And Sheriff Lucas is Earl Nell Lucas, the Milwaukee County Sheriff, uh, which you might not know in Madison and other places. But look, Supreme, Claire's right on in her policy analysis, and Supreme is right on in his political analysis. This is political, Okay. And it's not designed to solve a problem. uh, In terms of the world, it's not about empathy. It is just as the payroll tax thing was, except this is a little better because it actually works, unlike the payroll tax deferral. That was an even bigger lie. Uh, But notice, I'll I'll differ only slightly with uh, Supreme. It wasn't announced by Trump. He doesn't want to be seen as having empathy for renters. It was put out by the Center for Disease Control. My suspicion is someone got to him and let him know that we were going to have Hoovervilles, except they'd be Trumpvilles. If we started uh, evicting millions and millions of people, they'd be on the streets in tents. And that he is pushing that down the road. He has no problem with them being in tents later, as long as they're not called Trumpvilles. So I think that's what it's all about. And of course it doesn't work. And of course it pushes the problem down the road. And of course he doesn't even have empathy, but he has avoided a political problem he would have had if you had mass evictions in a pandemic. I think he, that's your, and maybe the CDC pushed it and he didn't stop it for that reason. He may not even be the motivation and his political people, but they said, yeah, probably bad for us. Let's let it happen. Claire, I wanted to give you the last word. We have just a few uh, seconds. I think you had something to say. 
Oh, I was just going to say that I um, I really appreciated the perspective that um, Supreme brought in that we need to also be holding our state and local level officials accountable for the work that they do around evictions and whatnot, and that it's really easy to just put all of the blame on the federal government and be like, this is your responsibility, this is your problem to solve. And that really absolves local leaders who have a tremendous amount of authority, um, especially um, you know, folks like the sheriff who can choose how to enforce the law um, and have a tremendous amount of flexibility around um, the tools that the myriad of tools that they have at their disposal. So, um, yeah, I appreciated you bringing that perspective and, and sort of saying, like, there are other folks that we can hold accountable in this situation. And with that, we are going to have to take a break here at the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back. We are going to t- change subjects. Um, this is actually a topic that uh, we've talked about and is sort of a slightly different uh, uh, fold to this topic. And that is, uh, quite frankly, it's around disclosure uh, of COVID-19. And we've talked in the past about uh, the Department of Health Services here in Wisconsin choosing not to release a lot of data or information about workplaces and a number of other places in terms of uh, where COVID-19 outbreaks were occurring. And we've had Voces de la Frontera on a, a number of times, and there's been a lot of work around that. Uh, and late last week, news broke that they're also not going to be releasing COVID-19 data and information as it relates to schools. This is un- I, unbelievable in my mind, because it's this data and information This is uh, that's critical to like actually uh, dealing with a COVID outbreak and people needing to know. Uh, Claire, am I, am I crazy to be so upset and uh, that this is, seems outrageous to me? No, I, I don't think that you are uh, wrong to be upset. I think parents deserve to know about the situation that they are sending their children into. And that absolutely includes the um, state of an outbreak in the classroom that they might be sending their children into. Uh, So I think it is, I am confident that it is an entirely reasonable response to say that we should um, have transparency from the state and from um, like local school districts around uh, around what COVID cases are like in that district. Um, I would also add that it is not unprecedented for the state to release these um, types of, of figures. So um, in big facilities, we know that they often don't, right? We had a whole hullabaloo around whether or not they the state was going to release um, you know, meatpacking plants and factories and big businesses and whatnot where they were investigations of outbreaks. So they don't do it for everybody. But for like long-term care facilities like nursing homes, for example, they do release the names of facilities where they're doing investigations and put that information on their website. And so it is not entirely unprecedented for um, for the state to reveal this type of, of information. And I think that you can draw um, or they could craft a pretty strong argument that schools should be treated like nursing homes and long-term care facilities because they're because like nursing homes, they are places where um, people, especially like 
people in vulnerable populations, um, like children who might, for example, have asthma um, or diabetes, are going to be spending the majority of their day. Supreme, you're going to be obviously heading to the legislature. Is this, uh, you know, DHS's position is somehow, I assume that this is sort of private information or that it'll be used, the data will be used to sort of scare or smear a school. They certainly had seemed to be echoing some sort of concerns about this as it related to businesses. Your thoughts on this? Uh, good question. Uh, um, and, 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 and no, I don't, th- I, don't, I don't think it's unreasonable for folks to want to have the answers. In Milwaukee County, we have one of the things uh, there, we call it no wrong door, where you can find resources in many different ways. Um, I don't want to have to necessarily go through it through the school. If I go through the school and I don't get my answer there, I should be able to go to the Department of Health Services and get my answer there. Where are my young people going, going to school at? What are they doing? A uh, question that I had, that, which is one of our listeners or all of our, many of our listeners are probably asking themselves, is why not? Why not share the information? Why not uh, let me know what's happening? If we're in the, in, in the middle of a pandemic, the rules of engagement, the, the way that we're dealing with things hasn't changed. I can still get uh, uh, COVID-19 if I'm less than uh, six feet away from somebody without a mask on. If I'm at lunch sitting next to my classmate eating. I need to know what the COVID rates are within that school. Um, also, uh, if, if you're saying my young people are not going to have the, all the symptoms and go through all, this, all of the things that people go through with COVID-19, when they come home with grandma or when they come home with their uncle or when they come home with parents who have uh, high blood pressure, who have diabetes, well, and so the question is, why can't we have that information? Because it's not only affecting students, and if it just affected students, it would still be bad. However, it's affecting and it's affecting and potentially infecting entire communities if you're going to turn these young people into super spreaders. And building off of Supreme's idea of we don't want schools to become like super, super spreaders, right? Transparency and data is how you make that happen, right? Because as soon as you get one case, if there's transparency in the data, then you can shut that business down, right? You can, you can, you can close that school, you can switch everybody to virtual, right? You know, whatever. But if, if a teacher, for example, doesn't know that, that he or she or they have been exposed, and then continues to interact with other teachers and go into other classes, or if they're a substitute teacher or something, then all of a sudden you have the Supreme's word a super spreader sort of situation, right? Because there was no sort of transparency in, in the data. Yes, I, I love what you said, and I agree. Well, I actually have a specific question for Robert on this, because to me, and I want to get Robert's thoughts, this seems to be a pattern. What I would suggest is, some common governance around how schools should reopen in the first place. And again, this is essentially being kicked to local districts to decide how they're going to publicly release the information. And that's not what most of these folks are skilled or trained in. We need DHS to provide, in my mind, better oversight. There should have been better oversight and guidance on how schools open, but then we don't even get COVID information. Robert? Look, This is both at the federal and state level, and quite frankly, since we have a Democratic administration, it is both Republican and Democratic. And it is irrefutable. I won't even add much to what Claire and Supreme said, that this is 
horrible policy. The reason it's horrible policy is because opening up schools and leaving it to school districts when you have this level of infection is horrible policy. And the motivation here is a political pressure because there isn't enough COVID relief. And so parents need to have their kids in school so they can work and support their family and not uh, not be evicted or be evicted in January if they're renting. Uh, and then the business wants it because business wants to have employees and they need people to deposit their kids in school. So there's immense pressure at the local level and the state level because we're not doing what's necessary in this pandemic. And the way to uh, solve that problem and to give in and therefore make the pandemic worse is not to let people know about it. This transparency is about hiding it quite specifically. And superintendents are not the people who can make these judgments. It has to be the Center for Disease Control and Department of Health Services. And if the Center for Disease Control won't do it, the governor has full power to have the Department of Health Services lay out clear standards to provide alternative child care or to actually, this is all fruit of the poison tree. The poison tree is not being willing to do what is necessary to control the pandemic. There is absolutely no way that we should be reopening, and it's a huge threat to the whole community. And colleges are the same thing, and they're already warning that they should not allow the kids to come back when they have huge infections because it'll infect the whole society. There are no laws on this. It's going to happen. They're going to be sent back when these schools spin out of control. Something that I, that I, I want to remind folks of is that we're not out of the woods with COVID-19. Um, and we silently had a spike here in Wisconsin in the month of July. Although we have more uh, stop gaps in place, we have more methods of control in place, we're still not out of the woods with COVID-19. There are several strands of COVID that are, that are around. There are people who have reportedly gotten COVID, gotten over it, and gotten it again. Um, and so we need to make sure that we are taking this as seriously as possible and that we aren't saying, oh, well, it's getting better. It's, it's, uh, we're moving past it. Uh, we need to take it as seriously as we did in March. And we, we need tracking. We need tracing. Uh, we need to make sure that we're not exacerbating uh, cases uh, by not taking it as seriously as we should. Supreme, that's a wonderful way to close out the show. As people head into Labor Day weekend, please be safe, be thoughtful, just because it's a holiday. It's not a holiday from COVID. Protect yourself, stay safe. And with that, we want to thank Supreme Mormukunde for joining us and uh, being a special guest panelist. It's been great to have you, Supreme. We'll certainly have you back more. Uh, and of course, we want to thank Representative David Bowen for joining us. And with that, we got to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>